Screenless. Making a soundtrack. Opening scene and action. Dan? Dan, what are you doing? Oh, hey Gareth. How are you? I'm good. What are you doing? Doing some food prep for today's episode. Got some carrots, a little bit of cucumber, um, some peppers. Uh, lots of different coloured peppers because obviously, you know, you've got to eat the rainbow. Oh. Right. There will now be an intermission while Gareth explains to Dan what today's episode is about. Right, yeah, so um, we're going to edit that bit out then. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah, great, okay. Okay, welcome to today's episode. How are you, Dan? I'm good, thank you, Gareth. How are you? I'm very well. Uh, I've moved into my new schedule. Yes, I can see. So that's it, really? Yeah, <laughs> no I mean... the news. Uh, thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye! <laughs> you, Dan, though, you have... Um, I can't actually see your head. No. I'm hiding. You've given your studio a lick of paint. I have, yes. And so there is quite an echo in your studio. So you're using a big shield. I have uh, thrown a blanket over my head and uh, <laughs> cut two eye holes. And uh, <laughs> I'm just hoping for the best. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I'm using a reflection filter because uh, I've taken pretty much everything out of the studio, obviously, to paint it. And um, it just is a bit boomy and echoey and ooh. So, uh, yeah. 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 There we go. Um, we're missing Tristan, aren't we? We are. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think his bike's got a flat tyre. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know how he's moving about at the moment. Well, you know, in that sleepy old village down south. Yeah. How do you get about? What? Oh, hang on. Is this him coming oh, now? What's that noise? Is that a bus? Is he on a bus? That's the number 78. Hey, hey, hey guys. I've just got back from Air Studios, so uh, thought, I'd, thought I'd take the bus oh. for the journey. I, I actually fancy slight, something slightly slower than the TARDIS, oh. but faster than the road bike, so thought I'd take the bus. Very nice. Very yeah. nice. It's, it's an expensive form of travel, a bus. I tried to go down from Folkestone to Hythe <laughs> not so long ago, and I had to take out a second mortgage. And it's literally about three miles. (laughs) In today's episode, we are talking about the copyist. Uh, Tristan, what is a copyist? A copyist is someone who sets the parts for the orchestra. So you have the main score, which the conductor reads from and everyone in the control room. And then you have the individual parts, which the players play from. Uh, And the copyist is in charge of making sure all the parts are very readable and that everything you know can be read it can be sight read essentially yeah so the orchestrator has prepared all the different parts for the orchestral players and so it's the copyist's role to make sure that everything's as it should be printed out and ready for the orchestral players to to play exactly so tristan who will you be speaking to this week who has the job of copyist we are speaking to the industry's favorite copyist jill streeter so you've worked with Jill before, is that correct, Tristan? Yeah, a couple of times before in the past. You know, it's just great to work with someone who 
is so efficient and organized and and gets on with it and just knows exactly what to do straight away so it's you know always a pleasure working with someone as experienced as Jill. I think that comes through in the interview as well she's clearly someone who knows the job inside out and uh, seems to know the best way to do it too. What's actually interesting about these episodes is that several trends are beginning to appear um, and one of them is great communication which is obviously imperative on every job and from my own experience any job that hasn't gone as well as the rest has always been down to miscommunication and poor organization and those are just two keys to the whole process. Yeah I fully agree and one other thing that comes through which the communication is entirely connected to is time you know, a minute of time in a recording studio costs a lot of money, doesn't it? So, Yeah, I think people think it's a bit of a cliche don't they, that time is money, but it, it really is, especially in this line of work where, like you say, studio time is just ridiculously expensive uh, because you've got so many people to pay. You've got, you've got to pay for the studio time. You've got to pay for the engineer's time. You know, um, the players, the conductor, this all starts racking up. And before you know it, you've blown thousands. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a hell of a lot of money. Okay, well, shall we go behind the scenes to listen to Jill's interview? I seem to have prepared a lot of crudités. Anyone want uh, some veg to go with it? Oh, before we do that, though, Dan, I understand you have some fascinating facts about Jill. Oh, I do, yes. Okay, so for episode three, here we go. Fandango! Jill has been a copyist since 1996, working with a huge range of clients on such diverse films as Wonder Woman 1984, Jojo Rabbit, Godzilla King of Monsters, Aladdin, The Iron Lady and Enola Holmes. In 1990, Jill trained as a trapeze artist and toured the world with John Malkovich's Circus of Wonder. She studied music at the University of Surrey and graduated with a first. She was also principal oboe for the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra, but gave up because she found the commute from Surrey was a tad too long. Her favourite colour is Sang de Boeuf, her favourite biscuit is the Humble Digestive, and her dog wrote all of the screenplays to the Fast and Furious franchise. Hi Jill, thank you very much for joining us today. There really is nobody better in the kind of copying line of work in our industry to ask than you. So thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. <laughs> I hope I say something useful and intelligent. Oh, we're, we're really looking forward to chatting to you. So it's a real pleasure. Can you run us through what a copyist does and what a copyist is and the difference between maybe dealing with the parts and you mentioned music prep and printing are you able to just run us through all the various elements of your job I think it might be worth just going briefly back into the history of music copying on this because I have to say the word copyist is an incredible misnomer in the main I have a, a colleague called Vic Fraser who's in his 80s now now when he began he literally did copy because he used to work in the Timpan Alley area of London and they all used to gather in a big communal room, all the copyists, music copyists, and there'd be a chief copyist who would literally hand copy out pen and ink, manuscript paper, the main part, and he would hand it back and then they would copy it. Nowadays, we do very little of that. We really, really do. My initial introduction into music preparation was still hand copying and we certainly did a lot more copying then but even then it was different to what Vic did we would be sent a handwritten score so that had to somehow get into a state where the musicians could look at it and read it and of course 
just in case anybody who's listening to this doesn't really know what a score is, that is, it's like a book with everything on it. So um, you've got every instrument in the orchestra is all represented on a page. Um, and of course, that means it's pretty small because there's a lot of instruments in an orchestra. So we've got somehow take that music with everything and divide it out into all the separate parts. And so when we were actually being music copyists, we would literally copy out each of the parts, but we did have shortcuts. Um, we would do what were called skeleton parts where we would copy out, say the horns might have a nice little chunk where they're all unison. So we would put that tune in, you know, uh, give them all that. And then we'd leave gaps for the bits where they were different. And then we would do photocopies because at least we did have photocopying machines. And then we would actually then fill in the other parts. So it was sort of like a halfway house, really. But now, music copyist is a bit of a misnomer. It's just a historical title for us. But really what we do is music preparation. So we will take the score and we will prepare it through music notation programs and make all the parts separate. But we're not actually doing any copying. <laughs> so we basically take a document which has everything for whole orchestra and we make it work for all the separate musicians that is it in a nutshell but it's how we do it that is different over the last 20 years because computers have come to stay you've been the copyist for a very long list of blockbuster movies and all sorts of genres from action-packed mission impossible series to the dramatic 1917 to the more light-hearted shawn the sheep farmageddon and so many more which we won't list otherwise we'll be here all day do you have a preferred genre of movie you like to work in or, or do you like the variety? I really don't mind because in a weird way, when we're working on projects, we're looking at it almost more visually than musically. So it's, it's not that we're thinking, oh my goodness, this is the most amazing dramatic scene or oh, this is a fun bit of chase, you know, in an Aardman movie. It, that sort of thing doesn't really come into it. And uh, what I would say is that every single project even when it's by the same composer, is different. And that's really because it's the team that surrounds the film that makes the difference. So although it might be the same composer, there will probably, there'll probably be a different director and different music editors and different orchestrators, perhaps, although that's more likely to be constant. But it, So really, it honestly doesn't make a difference to me. I enjoy them all. Some are more stressful than others, but I enjoy them all, whatever the, the movie. And occasionally I get to see a little bit of a movie in the control room, but at the moment I don't get to even see that. So, and occasionally, obviously, I'm listening to the music and you think that is a gorgeous cue. So I think I must remember that one when I go and see the movie, but invariably I don't. I go and see it. I think, I don't remember. When was that bit? <laughs> so when you receive the file, do you ever... Like, say, if you've got a Sibelius file, do you ever listen through to it or are you just literally cracking on with the parts? Nope, I do not listen to it. Is that a terrible thing? I don't. There's not usually time. If you, I mean, the average turnaround time for the music prep for a movie, and this is even when it is preparation as well as printing, because I would say that a lot of our projects nowadays do come from America and I have good... Um, contacts with quite a few of the copying teams over there they are very keen to hang on to their work as you might imagine and if it's recording here in the UK they do the prep and I do the printing I say I it's usually a bit of a team because there's a huge quantity of paper and organization that goes into anything like that 
If it's the preparation as well, then I use a team here. But the fact is that there's not really time once the film begins, once this, the cues start coming in. And bear in mind that they usually say, oh, we should be able to start feeding you material, you know, about a week before the recording starts. Well, this is never what happens. I'm afraid <laughs> that four days, yeah, in fact, what quite often happens is you might get a little ticky, weeny little batch of cues and you think, oh, good, it's all starting. And then there's a great big gap of several days and then what tends to happen is you get a whole slew of cues maybe 20 that they just dump on you like a great big sort of shed load of stuff and then it's just so panicky there's no time to listen to a cue no <laughs> you've spoken about the parts in terms of the printing how does that work are you able to run us through what happens during that part of the process well what it does mean is that if you're going to be a serious in the studio copyist, music copyist, music preparation person, whatever you like to call us, there are some key things that you need and you need to have good printers. You also need the internet and you need a good laptop that's not going to die on you. In fact, what you need is backups to your laptop and your printer. You need tons and tons of supplies of paper, tape, all the things that you actually need to create these parts. I mean, I should add at this point, perhaps, that one of the things that I am asked on an incredibly regular basis is, but why don't they just do it on screens in the studio? And it will happen. <laughs> I'm sure it will. I'm sure I'm going to be, my career will be what will be sort of dinosaur quality in a few years' time because they will move on to screens. But at the moment, it's, it's, uh, it would be a huge investment for probably a studio to make they'd have to have all the equipment working they'd have to have incredibly efficient internet that did not go down you'd have to have musicians that were okay with the technology of finding the cues they're meant to be playing they'd have to be able to write in adjustments onto them pretty quickly and easily so they'd have to be okay with that so for now i think we're likely to be printing music for the next few years and really what that does mean is that for several days before a film starts recording, we are printing on every printer that we can lay our hands on. I think our record is over 200 kilos of music on one film. And um, there's a certain composer who's out to break the record. <laughs> I won't say who, but every film <laughs> am I going to break the record? <laughs> that is madness. That really is crazy. And very often um, we end up having to send a lot of this music out say it's a film that's you know they're being paid for in the states their legal obligate the legal obligation is that we have to supply hard copy of the film this is changing quite rapidly i have to say and i think that the the coronavirus is going to really change things quite a bit in that it's becoming less sensible to start shipping off box loads of germ-ridden music <laughs> back to the states what i did do this last week is um after a film I, um, I actually had to scan all the, the orchestral changes in the parts. And that was quite tedious. To oh, be I, can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine. That doesn't sound like too much fun at all. No, it isn't. But I think it would still actually still work out massively more economic than shipping 200 kilos of music or whatever, which is incredibly expensive. Never mind the cost of the environment and everything else. So, 
and then the music can be recycled you see yeah it's funny you mentioned that because sometimes when if i've been at abbey road or air i'll just i'll be near the client lounge at abbey road and i'll just see uh, your jill streeter global music services sticker on a big like three massive cardboard boxes and i've got a what is this what what are these boxes <laughs> well well what happens it is an issue because it's actually a big issue because when they're getting the project ready they're never thinking about what they want to do with the music after the sessions and of course you you raise this question on the last you know at the end of the last session what would you like to have the music and they invariably go oh um oh well we better think about that um so now actually and this is as a direct result of the the pandemic i am going, i'm posing the question with all projects uh, which makes me reminds me i need to do it with a couple of potential projects now whether they want to recycle shred or ship and they've got to decide before the project even begins what they want to do that's brilliant there's a lot of physical hard labour involved in getting a film ready. Yes, yeah, it is a crazy amount of paper used. And yeah, hopefully that will be more environmentally friendly in the future. I actually do hope so, because it always seems a bit crazy, because I don't know whether you know this, but a lot of the music that goes back to the States is then sent into a deep storage area, which apparently exists under LA in an old salt mine. <laughs> wow. And it's probably never seen again, you know. So, yeah, it's not a very environmentally friendly process at the moment, really. Our last guest, uh, who was actually Alastair King, who you probably know very well, uh, he talked about mm -hmm. housekeeping before he gets started on each orchestration. What does the copyist <laughs> need from an orchestrator? And what do you absolutely need in order to get your work done? Well, the first thing I would say is you need a good avenue of communication. And it is amazing how often this does not happen. Not so much with the orchestrator, maybe. Well, it depends. You Sometimes I get stuff coming through the, the sort of composer's team. Sometimes I get it coming straight through from the orchestrator. I think that with Alistair, we do communicate well, so that's good. But it's amazing how often I do not get told who is involved in the project. And in fact, it is incredibly hard to get any sort of project title out of people. I feel you. I feel your pain. <laughs> then the other thing, which is utterly critical and which for some reason they withhold until the last possible moment, is a cue list. That is my most absolute, completely essential thing that I really find it impossible to get really going on a project without. Yeah. I really do. What I use is I have one here I prepared earlier. As every good copy is sure, this is my Bible. Now, I, everything I do, every project I do exists both as paper and Excel documents. So with this, I'm just trying to think, have I? Yes, I do. Now, it looks an absolute tatty mess, but every project I ever do exists in this format. I don't know whether you can see my tatty, tatty mess Yeah, I can here. just about see it. Um, I can hold it a bit closer, but what <laughs> I do, I get... Uh, a cue list which I always I just have to keep nagging away at them until I get one please can I have a cue list a cue list would be really useful I can't really get going without a cue list please send me a cue list. they send me a cue list eventually and the first thing I do is this book this book is very very good because it's an ongoing changing document because it's I don't really can see it's got these things so you can take the pages in and out and add right. pages take wow. and everything it's utterly invaluable i make a list 
which I sort of showed you then, really scrabbly, scrawly, because there's never any time. By the time they send me all the cue lists and everything, there's usually maybe three or four days left before they start recording. Maybe five if I'm lucky. I make a list of all the cues as they have it on their cue list. It might change, but I, I sort of go for broke and put everything down. And then down the side, I put all the instruments that are booked. Now, this is the other thing that's critical. As well as having communication with the orchestrator, I have to have communication with the person who's contracting the orchestra. Because although I will tend to get a list from the orchestrator as to what is in the lineup, it's amazing how often it differs from what the yeah. contractor has done. And also, they're usually a little bit sort of lacking in giving me the details such as perhaps as a double of an instrument which you might not expect say maybe the trumpet suddenly doubles flugelhorn or something like that or certainly the flutes might have a variety of instruments with them and they haven't mentioned any of those so so i'm then in constant communication with the contractor and with the orchestrator once i've written my list of um instruments down the side and i've got my cue list um, the other thing that I need to discover, and I might discover this from the orchestrator, but it's more likely I discover it from somebody else, um, again, by a lot of asking them time and again, who will be at the sessions and who will need sets of scores. This is actually a hell of a lot more critical than they ever seem to realise because it's a big part of the project is producing the scores for people to look at. Yeah. Obviously, the conductor will have a score. Obviously, the engineer, well, I say obviously, sometimes engineers don't, but engineers tend to have a set of scores. There's the chap who's operating the Pro Tools rig. I give him a little score because he needs to know what speeds things are at and make sure it matches with what he's got. But then you've got all the other people who might need a score. And depending on the project, it might be anything up to, well, I think the most sets of scores I've ever done is about 13. I think the most. And it takes Which, a long time to do, doesn't it, the scores? Yeah, it takes a long time to do. And if I do not get the full details of who's likely to be coming over at the beginning, it makes it a lot more arduous to then go back and do more sets of scores. So I do, I do really push them to try and give me a full set. I have to say at the moment, that has been one benefit of this last, you know, the, the new version of sessions is that, actually there are very few people actually in the control room because it can't be so yeah. it does mean that the sets of scores are rather less but certainly there are certain companies who bring over everybody and that's when you get all these massive mm. numbers of who all want to score and that is a massive amount of work i mean it really is that yeah. can be um you know a meter high pile of scores you know. Especially as you've got the conductor scores are usually taped, aren't they, to to minimise noise. And then you've got the bound scores in the control room. And the taped scores take so long to do when you've got a big stack or a, a high amount of cues to get through. It depends if you're the queen of taping or not. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. We are quick. We're very quick with taping. I do a lot of it and my colleague Annie is often sitting there taping away and it's her favorite thing to do she loves taping scores so and when i'm actually doing stuff for my home office i have got my partner richard he does some score taping he's absolutely immaculate he does the most beautiful job he is slower but i i take off the time in terms of what he might put down <laughs> anyhow 
um, certainly taping is a skill that is so, it's something that most music copyists are not terribly good at. And actually, it's one of the most critical things you do need to be good at if you're going to get anywhere. <laughs> so yeah. it's all about the practicality things more than the music, I'm afraid, when you're a music copyist. It really is. In your notation software, do you work within your own template? Or are you working directly from the orchestrator's notation software file? Really, it's a mixture. If it's something like a show, because we do do shows occasionally, then we tend to import things into our templates. If it's a film, it's easier to work with what we sent because quite often there will be a whole team of orchestrators. They will all, might all use different versions of the programme. They might Some of them might be on Finale, some of them might be on Sibelius, and I'm quite sure soon I'll get some on Dorico, though that's still a fairly fledgling bit of the procedure. But we have had a couple of projects on Dorico. And so, therefore, to try, to try and get them all into our template, because things, I'm sure you've discovered this, Tristan, if you set everything back to a default and try and import your your template into it, it never quite works. It never no. quite works. Yeah. So what I what actually I tend to do, if there's time, is I will make the the main orchestrator's template work for, for us, and then I'll create a new style and then carry on from there, rather than actually trying to impose our sort of um template on everything once i've sent out the copyist they they then sort of make it look we do try and standardize really to a large extent how the parts look but you know for instance you might get sent um a score where they've used weird fonts now that is something i advise them not to frankly it's much better to stick to very standard fonts on all these sort of things because otherwise you can open it up and it'll be gobbledygook yeah i've had that a couple of times before at a session you know you're you're sent in as a kind of music librarian and you open up the parts and you're like oh man (laughs) this doesn't look good (laughs) or they think it all looks very wonderful yeah it probably does but it's a pain if you actually got to deal with it in a panic um i mean I would say the Americans, you see, they, did, they approach this very, very differently to us. We, the way I approach it is, now let's make this very, as simple as I can. I will send out a score to a copyist and they will do all the parts for the whole orchestra. They will set it all up. They will set up the printing for, if it's a Sibelius file, you can set up all the printing so it's really quick to print. Or they will certainly always do a set of PDFs because everybody wants them now. And they'll send it back. In America, because they're working in an office setup, they, they actually tend to effectively do what we used to do all those years ago, and all the parts are separate still. They very, very rarely use part of the extraction process so that everything's all in one file, which is what we do. And so therefore, for example, I was working on something last week, and something needed a title change. It meant going to every single oh. file and changing it all separately on each you know, part. It was, I don't know why they do it. Well, I do know why they do it. It's because they've got lots of people there and it's easier for them to do it that way. So they have a sort of template and they do import their stuff into their house template, but all separate parts. And it's, it's quite interesting because the composer and the orchestrator both have a signing off process. And obviously the copyist is basically the last person in the chain before the orchestra yeah. sits down with the parts. Is it common for you to use a proofreader of, of some sort or do you literally just ship it out and it's on the stands? Not Now, again, this is somewhere a way it differs between America and here, really, because, because they've got this office set up, they usually have a couple of people who are designated proofreaders. 
which must be the job from hell, actually. But <laughs> here in the UK, it's much trickier because obviously we're all doing our, our bit in our separate offices. If it's something where I am worried about it, say uh, certainly if it's something which has been um, input from, you know, a handwritten sport, which is really quite rare now. Yeah, yeah. In fact, it's probably now one client who still will send handwritten scores. And actually, he likes to do it so that we input everything and then he likes to proof it because it, it's much, he likes seeing it on the page input, but he doesn't like doing the inputting. So <laughs> there used to be um, another orchestrator who would always do his scores very complicated really scores by hand and then at that point I would have them input and then we would proof each other's you know I'd send one score to another person so they weren't looking at the same thing and we proof it that way and spend some time doing that but I do not have designated proofers no, no. not in the main what expectations are there from the orchestral players um I think in the main musicians are incredibly long-suffering actually they put up with all sorts of terrible looking music to play from but I have expectations of what it should look like on their behalf so um, uh, my main uh, gripe with a lot of the stuff which I see uh, scattered around studios and things is that in the main people do not think about how hard it is for the musicians seeing it from a distance you know they're sort of like this or like this or whatever and they're several feet away from the stand and they unfortunately a lot of the defaults for Sibelius are really set up for classical templates and performances and pieces and the thing with the recording is they have one chance to get it down you know and um maybe two if they're lucky and therefore we owe it to them to make it as clear and in their face as we possibly can. So therefore, I was actually chatting to some young um, students the other day and I said, what size do you do, you know, when you do some parts for players, what size do you make it on the page? And there's a sort of measurement system on say for instance Sibelius one of our notation programs and they said oh well we make it seven which is actually quite small and I said well you know and the other one said oh maybe up to 7.5 I said well our standard orchestral size for the stave is actually 7.8 and they both went oh, really which because it is actually quite large but yeah. but but the musicians love it because it's so much clearer and um, the other thing is I've got glasses you've got glasses everyone's got glasses we work long hours we're staring at screens uh, we're staring at music people's eyesight i think tends to go quite quickly when you're in the music business and therefore the bigger is better um the other thing that they do say words about is if it's all cramped up if there's nowhere to write stuff and they will definitely have a bit of a moan if there aren't bar numbers every bar for film recording this is absolutely essential totally essential because they just get you know can we go from bar 28 if it's in the middle of some horrible mass of bars with no bar numbers they've got to go yeah. <laughs> time is money that's always been the the motto within the music business and it's still very true there used to be actual nibs that went with pens called time is money nibs <laughs> But actually, within a recording session, 
each minute that is wasted is a lot of money. So mm. the clearer we can make things for them, the better. What tips would you have for copyists entering the industry? <laughs> I was going to say, don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, the thing is, I've, I've absolutely always enjoyed doing it since the very first time I started doing a bit of copying till now. Um, I've absolutely loved it and I've managed to make a career out of it. However, there've definitely been phases of feast and famine. There've been moments where you think, oh, what am I doing? Should I be training for something else? And it, the trouble is it isn't getting any easier. It really isn't getting any easier because certainly in, even in the last 20, well, I, on my emails I put, I've been doing music prep for 37 years. It probably should go up to 38 years. And actually that's true. But when I started, you'd regularly get teams of 10 copyists doing projects. Now I can actually cover most films with a team of three people, maybe four. You know, I do spread it out a bit further than that sometimes just for fear to get everything done and to also spread it around a bit. But really, you know, the days of massive teams of people are over in the main, really. So it means there's less of a job market there for people. I do suggest copyists... Yep. You know, they probably need to have several um, irons in the fire, really, um, especially if they're not doing the sort of studio side of things, if they're not particularly dexterous, if they're not really going to be sort of whizzes at taping and, you know, yeah. sorting out parts and collating. And <laughs> well, that might be a word which people, well, that means getting everything into the folder for the particular player. Then, you know, I'm not that likely, or they, a lot of people don't actually like doing sessions. That's another thing. So, you know, that means they're stuck at home doing that side of it. And really, they can't earn a living on it. I don't think they can just earn a living doing that, you know? I completely agree. I think it comes back into that side of what I always bang, end up banging on about is the diversity. You need to be doing... I think the days are over when you can say, I just want to be an orchestrator, I just want to be a copyist. And maybe there are a small selection of people out there that can do that. But even if you can, it's so dangerous. I'm, I'm talking about those who are starting out now, so sort of my yes. generation, um, it yeah. is completely different. And I think it was incredibly dangerous just to choose one thing. And also it actually makes you better at all of your jobs. If you have a, a thorough understanding, say if you're a composer, an orchestrator and a copyist, you have such a thorough understanding of all of those and what makes everyone else's life easier. It really just makes things so much more efficient, in my opinion. Well, I guess so. But then you do get sometimes situation where one person thinks, well, actually, basically, I can do it all. <laughs> you know, orchestrate, copy, print, you know, deliver. And so I think, I, I mean, I do like to sort of try and keep a team going just so yeah. several people are do it, which is good. Because you see, I mean, I'd be hopeless if I had to orchestrate. Oh, my God, I'd be absolutely hopeless. And, you know, I wouldn't be able to do it at all. So lucky I'm at the stage I am at really but um, also it is important that you do have the broadest knowledge of your particular field that you can have and a lot of people don't they they say oh yes I want to be a music copyist I do I work on Spadius is that you know where's the work you know but there are other programs too and really and also people don't they often do not know much beyond the surface layer of the program and that's yeah. Yeah. not acceptable either they need to delve into it yeah. you know so Jill, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been just a huge pleasure and we're lucky to have you. So thank you very much. I've loved it. It's great. And I didn't feel like I was doing an exam, so that's good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> thank you so much. 
So yet another fantastic insight into the orchestral recording process. Yes. Really nice interview there from Jill. Yeah, it was lovely, lovely of her to give us the time. And uh, I really liked the misnomer she picked up in, in the title, copyist. That yeah. It's not really copyist anymore, it's more preparation. Yeah. I think that helped sort of understand the role a little better as well. Yeah, I think that's where a lot of the confusion comes in when people hear someone mention music copyist. It's like, well, what copying is there to be done? Because <laughs> all of the orchestrations are done in a notation software program now. None of it is done by hand. So what copying is there to be done? So that really does break down the the barriers of confusion. Yeah. I thought it was really fascinating that actually listening to the music isn't really part of her role. So she is way more visual than she is musical. You know, it's up to the orchestrator really to put the music into it. So this theme of time, saving time. I mean, I'm sure if she had all the time in the world, she'd be listening to it and almost proofreading what the orchestrator's done and things like that, which which I'm sure happens uh, from time to time, doesn't it? I think it's interesting to hear just how much work goes into this element of the job, because I think people think that just printing music is a bit of an easy ride. Um, you know, how hard can it be just to print off a few bits of music but actually you know from my own experience when you're working on a a big project which actually I've just finished on now with Simon Whiteside uh, there's just an insane amount of music that you wouldn't even believe an insane amount Mm. of paper as well yeah it's interesting what you're saying about the boxes and the shipping that sheer amount of paper it must cost a fortune Yeah. yeah also the differences between the UK and the US where you know let's face it 99% of film scores and everything originate from big American companies. The fact that they will have teams of people. So in America, they could do proofreading, but it tends not to happen over here because they've got dedicated people who just are paid to do that. And uh, that's just not a thing that happens over here. So yeah, I found that quite fascinating as well. I think it's also a budget thing as well. I've heard that American budgets are basically double the UK budget, especially in the copying department which is how people like joanne kane can afford to run an enormous office space with you know people working full-time like you say proofreading and checking and all sorts and it's interesting to hear about the archival process as well because i can't really understand why they don't just want the um the notation file because you know paper takes up a lot of space and also it fades after a number of years um, unless they've got some sort of system where it doesn't, it somehow doesn't fade and they keep it in pristine condition. When my brother Sam worked for George Fenton, one of his main roles was archiving all of George's old scores. And literally in George's office, there was a big wall that was just, it just had all the scores of all the TV, the film, everything that he had was all stored in this giant bookcase. And Sam just had to take them all down and put them into Sibelius. And that was making sure that they could be kept for the future because, as you say, paper degrades. Mm. And, you know, when it goes back to the sort of the 70s and things like that, stuff starts to get really old and you start, yeah. it does start to lighten up and you can't see it as well. And Well, that's why it all gets scanned, isn't it? That's why it gets scanned. But there's no point doing that anymore because it's all, you can just export it as a PDF. You could export the whole score as yes, a PDF in 10 seconds. as a PDF. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Jill is the the final bit of preparation before the session is organised. So next is the fixer. Yes. The person who 
sets up the session with the orchestral players. Yeah. Key role, key role, because, um, you know, without the players, there'd be no music to listen to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we're kind of coming up to a milestone, aren't we, where all the music's been prepared and now it's handing over to, to that recording session. Yeah, also, I think now you've, you've gone from a small team of people to all of a sudden, if it's mm. a Hollywood film score, you mm. know, you've got a, what, a 60, 70, maybe even 80 or 90-piece orchestra, depending on uh, budgets and all the rest of it. So all of a sudden, this, this work that these people have done is going to be put in front of a lot of people, and it's going to take all of those mm. people to then recreate the composer's vision. So... Yeah, this is a definitely yeah. a milestone moment. Well, you can see you can see why the music budget for a Hollywood movie needs to be so high, like a million dollars or something, because there are so many people involved. I mean, you can easily blow a hundred grand in a week doing orchestra recording yeah. if it's a big orchestra, mm. um, and that's just the players. You know, that's not counting the orchestrator and the copyist and the contractor and all those sorts of people. It's a crazy amount of money. Yeah, fantastic episode once again. Thank you ever so much, Tristan, for your wonderful interviewing. Oh, oh, oh! I think so, sorry, Tris, you're gonna you're gonna have to hurry. I, oh. I think the seven, the seventy eight bus is just coming past no, now. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> so, Dan, is that a is that a wrap? It's a wrap. There you go. Back to chopping your carrots. That's a wrap. How do you find us? Makingasoundtrack.com will tell you all you need to know. Links to the podcast, social media links, and there's information about us too. If you're enjoying the podcast, it would make our day if you could give us a positive rating or review. And if you enjoyed this episode, hit that share button and recommend it to someone else. We'll see you next time for The Fixer episode. The Fixer. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.